We are in a Philippians series. I'm going to dig right in. Um, Let's see. I am in Philippians 2. I'm going to read verses 12 through 19. It was really funny because I was supposed to cover Philippians 2, 12 all the way to 30, but 12 through 19 was so rich, I sort of got stuck there, okay? So uh, we're going to read 12 through 19, and then we're going to take a quick look at verse 30 at the very end of that chapter because it'll tie all this together. Um, As we do that, I want to sort of set the table. You know how before you eat lunch you set the table? I want to set the table with something, because it's one of the core values that is essential to what we're doing here at Saltbox, Um, and it is John 5. Will you put that up for me, Matt? John 5, verses 39 and 40. And this is actually Jesus talking, and he's actually rebuking a group of Pharisees. Now, a group of Pharisees, anybody want to take a gander at who that would be like in today's culture? Somebody said it. Pastors, that's right. People like me, that's exactly right. Now, it would also be church people. Okay, religious people. So the Lord is actually rebuking a group of of religious people. And here's what he says. You study the scriptures diligently. That sounds like a good thing, doesn't it? We even have a one-year Bible out there so that you can study the scriptures diligently. But he says you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. Yet these scriptures point and testify to me. Who is it now? Christ Jesus. Say Jesus with me. One, two, three. Man, y'all are sleeping today. We've got to wake you up. We'll wake me up, too. Here we go. Yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Now, here's what I want to... As we dig in this morning um, uh, to the Scriptures, it is imperative that you understand that the Christian life is simultaneously about the fullness of the Holy Spirit being activated and released in our daily life and the fullness of His Word and Scripture being released in our daily life. And it is the merger of the two. So you cannot have one without the other. And and you can get sort of on pendulum swings where you have churches that go, well, we're a word church, and you've got churches over here. We're a spirit church. Look what Jesus says. You can actually study the scriptures and yet refuse to see the Lord Jesus, the Holy Spirit of Jesus in them. So what we are about here is literally a word and spirit church. I like to think of it almost like a riverbed. Is a river any good without a riverbed? The river's just going to become this, what, little puddle that dissipates. So the riverbed, in many ways, becomes like the Word, the Bible, and then the Spirit becomes like the river that flows through the riverbed. Make sense? That's what we are about. So when you come in here, my goal is not to necessarily inspire you or entertain you. My goal is to actually create hunger deep inside of you for the very Word of God and the presence and person of the Holy Spirit in your life. Amen? Amen. So prepare to be uncomfortable. Okay, let's dig in. Uh, We are in uh, Philippians 2. If you don't have a paper Bible, you might want to get one. I know everybody has an electronic Bible these days, but I'm a paper Bible fan because you can begin to make little notes about what the Holy Spirit, who we just talked about, is speaking to you while you're reading the Word, Bible. That's exactly right. Okay, so we're going to start in verse 12, but before we start in verse 12, take a look at verse 9. And what's the first word in verse 9 in your Bible? Therefore, therefore, okay, now skip down to verse 12. What is the first word in verse 12? Therefore. therefore. Now, you've got to get this as we dig in. The first therefore is about God. Therefore, God. The second therefore is, an, uh, it is implied that it's about you and me. 
So the first therefore is God. Today what we're talking about, we talked last week about all that God did in Christ Jesus, pouring himself out. Today we're going to talk about because of the way Jesus Christ poured himself out, therefore what are you and I called to do and how are we called to live? Does that make sense? All right, verse 12. Therefore, my dear friends, Paul's writing, he's in prison, chained up, remember? And get this, not only is he in prison, chained up, but he is writing to encourage the church in Philippians. Now, if you're feeling low, if you're feeling dejected, if you're feeling in a gnarly place in your life, if you're disappointed, if you're feeling empty, I want you to take heart because the very Apostle Paul is in a low, dejected, empty, chained up place, and he has actually chosen to use that place as a platform from which he can encourage the church. Now, flip that around and apply it to your life. Can Jesus use your pain, dejection, lonely, chained up place to edify and encourage the people around you? Yes! Somebody say yes. One, two, three. Yes! But you've got to choose it. You've got to choose it. You've got to choose Christ Jesus to be glorified in you and through you. Okay, verse 12. Therefore, my dear friends, I love how warm Paul is when he writes, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, Continue to work out your salvation. I pointed this out last week, but it's imperative. It does not say work for. It says work. Let's try that again. Work out. out. It says work out your salvation. And then it's fascinating because it says work out your salvation with fear and trembling. It doesn't say arrogance. It doesn't say haughtiness. It doesn't say pride. It doesn't even say confidence. It says work out your salvation with fear and trembling trembling. It's kind of lost in the American Christian culture right now. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Okay. Verse 14. Do nothing without grumbling. grumbling. I love that Brian's tracking with me. Do nothing without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without finding, uh, without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them. Shine among that generation, right? That's what we're supposed to be doing. Like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. Say word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. But even if I am being poured out, if you were here last week, remember, even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you so that you too should be glad and rejoice with me. Now, skip to the end of the chapter. We're going to read verse 30. Because he almost died, it's talking about Timothy and then a guy named Epaphroditus, Because uh, he almost died for the work of Christ, he risked his life to make up for the help you yourselves could not give me. Now, after I read scripture, by and large, I always pray. Do you know why? I don't give a rip what I have to say. Just don't care. But what we want to do in these moments is we actually want to ask that the Holy Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit of Jesus would come and he would enliven his scripture so that we could understand it, so that we could eat it, so that we could digest it, so that we could be transformed, so that we could go from this place and transform the environments and cities and houses and neighborhoods in which we live. Amen? Amen. So pray with me. Lord Jesus, Father, it's not about us. It's not about how we came in. It's not about the multitude of anxious thoughts that have crowded into our minds. It's not about the crises in our lives or even the pain. 
It's about you, King Jesus. And Lord, as we open your word, would you let us gaze into your word and would you transform us by your spirit? Lord, would you bring great revelation about this scripture and then would you meet us in it? Holy Spirit, would you meet us in it and walk with us through it and then help us as we apply it to our lives? Come, Holy Spirit, and have your way in us and through us. In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, my first point is that the Christian's greatest goal is Christ-likeness. Okay, Christ-likeness. This is like, man, how do you even get your arms around that? What is Christ-likeness? And I I think you'd have to sort of park this in an understanding that what Paul is writing about here is that we're working out our salvation, and as we work out our salvation, not for, we are actually being becoming like Christ. And I think you'd have to sort of park that in a God works in us, and we work out. God works in, we work out. That's one of the core values of Saltbox. That's actually where it came from. Because one of the things you see throughout Genesis to Revelation is that God transforms a people, he renews a people, he changes a people, and then he makes them outward focused. He will take care of in here if you'll surrender it to him, and then he'll call you and mobilize you out. Amen? Amen. Amen. Come on, somebody say. Um, Here's another way you could actually uh, sort of um, think about that. You'll hear me say a lot, get a one-year Bible and get a five-year journal. What am I saying by that? Work out your salvation. Work it out! Because here's the deal. The Christian life is hard. A lot of preachers, a lot of people, a lot of not people who write books, a lot of people on TV are going to get up and say, it's going to be, everything's going to be easy, and everything's going to be perfect, and everything's going to be a cup of tea, and everything's going to be wonderful, and everything's going to be perfect. No, 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 no. No, no, no. The Christian life is actually a life of sacrifice. It's a life of laying down your life. I can actually find seven times in the Gospels where Jesus preaches the Gospel. So Gospel just means good news. So anytime you hear Gospel, it's just good news. It's just preach. He's, he's preaching the way to Jesus. And every time he preaches it, he says, take up your cross and follow me. So the Christian life is actually, um, it, it can be painful and it can be difficult and, and I think what you have to begin to look at here is there's this um, blend, as you read these verses, uh, between um, God working in us, um, and, and because God is working in us, we are resting. Remember that series we did, Sit, Walk, Stand? We are resting because it's the finished work of Christ. I am at rest. But then he calls me to be um, confidently and actively responding to him and pursuing his work on the earth. So it's this, it's this dichotomy. It's not like I rest and I work. No, no, no. I rest while I'm working. I am at rest because it's the finished work of Christ Jesus. It's Christ crucified and resurrected. All power in heaven and earth has been made available through him to us so we can rest as we go. It's, a, it's kind of both at the same time. I think um, as we look at this Christ-likeness thing, uh, l- let me grapple with you here for just a minute. Um, one of the classic pitfalls I see right now in the Ameri- in American evangelical church is we, are, we have tooled it into a place where people come to feel good. Now, go with me. Hang with me just a second. Um, Andy, are you in the room, Andy Lee? Andy Lee is the head of our volunteers, so she's really in charge of the Sunday morning environment. Now, everything you experience as you come in from the parking lot and into our little wonky cafeteria and whatever, whatever, is designed to be comfortable. 
It's designed to be a positive experience. We want a good cup of coffee, and I love Andy because she's always going, you know, do we need better chairs? Do we need better coffee? Do we need more volunteers out here? Does this need to be improved? And all that is good, true, and right. And I go, Andy, please keep making it better. Keep pushing us. Now, here's the thing. The person who gets up here to preach the gospel of Christ Jesus is actually designed to make you uncomfortable. Oh, no, Michael, you're going to run people away from church. I might. I might. Because I refuse to preach a half gospel. I will preach a full gospel of Christ Jesus, the entire thing. And it can be a challenging journey that he calls us to. Now, here's the thing. He promises never to leave us in the pain and in the journey. He promises to go with us. He promises to fulfill us, to walk with us hand in hand. I love that picture in the beginning of Genesis when God would actually come in the cool of the day and he'd walk with Adam and Eve in the garden. One of my favorite things to do is walk with our kids. I just like to walk. I just want to hold a hand and just walk. See, that's the Lord Jesus with us. He wants to walk with you, to go with you, to journey with you. And there will be times that he will heal, that he will change your circumstances, that he will break through, that he will restore the relationship. There will be be miraculous displays of his supernatural power. And sometimes the miraculous display of his supernatural power will be going with you in the difficulty. Now, this classic pitfall of sort of the American church is, and and, and honestly, if you're in the younger generation here, I'm probably going to lean on you for just a second here. I'm in the younger generation. We have made Christianity more about um, almost tweet-worthy quips and clever quotes, and what we can slap on Instagram. And so all of a sudden you have, you know, the gospel of Christ Jesus, and the idea is just these little one-liners and things we can sort of zing out there instead of true life transformation. I mean, what the gospel of Christ Jesus requires is that we come and we surrender our hearts to him, and he fills us, and he changes us, and he renews us, and it's life transformation. It's like this, it's a, it's a different actual way of thinking. Now, think, think with me. Let me actually tell you a story because it might help you understand the point I'm trying to make. Um, when I was in seventh grade, I had a teacher. I'm going to call her Mrs. Smith, okay? If that was not her name, but I'm going to call her Mrs. Smith. And uh, Mrs. Smith, uh, she was probably insecure about um, the grades that her students were getting. And so when exam time came around, she would pull out um, an overhead projector. Do you guys know what an overhead projector is? <laughs> Jay, do you know what an overhead... (laughs) She would pull out this uh, overhead projector. I'm dating myself, my 39 years. She'd pull out an overhead projector, and she'd turn it on, and she'd sit at the front of the room, and it'd be usually a 50 or 60-question exam. Hey, Tim, Tim Wright, could I have a sip of water? I did not bring a water up here. Thank you. Um, So she would pull out this overhead projector, and she'd put on it the questions. Number one, and she'd say, the answer to number one is B. And the answer to number two, exactly the question, you see it right there, and she'd circle it as C. And three, here's the question, and then it's D. And, and she went through the entire test like this. Now, maybe like handing a, I'm going to be crass, you just go with it because I'm a straight up kind of guy, but if you hand a Playboy to a 12-year-old and say, don't look, or you hand a thing of alcohol to someone who's got a propensity to drink and, and to drunkenness and you go, don't drink. It's like you hand the test answers to a 14-year-old, and what are they going to do? 
There was no studying for that exam. What there was was we're going to rip off this whole little line, and we're going to go 1A, 2B, 3C. And so exam time came, and everybody is sitting in there, and Mrs. Smith sat behind her desk, and she just looked down, and everybody is whispering and passing their little pieces of paper around. Now, no, 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 here's what happened. I had already gotten busted for cheating. <laughs> True. Thank you so much. I had already gotten busted for cheating, and I felt guilty about it. It had been a few months prior. And so at the dinner table, I um, sort of feigned a confession. Uh, and, and my mom drug me in by the ear, and I had to ask the teacher's forgiveness. True story. Thanks, Mom. <laughs> um, she's right there. And, uh, but Miss Bird, so I, I the, the, Miss, the, the Miss Smith, Miss Bird, uh, there you go. <laughs> I did it. Oh, my goodness. So, so Miss, <laughs> so, <laughs> So Miss Bird, Miss Bird uh, gave us. She's not even in the state anymore, so it's okay. She uh, she gave us the test answers, and I got home after this test, and I had tried so hard not to cheat. I mean, I had tried so hard. Like all my friends are cheating, and I'm staring down, and I'm trying to take this test without cheating, and they're passing these things back and forth, and I really did pretty well. I didn't I didn't take any answers, and I was like, no, no, I'm going to hold the line. I'm going to hold the line. But I got home, and my parents were sitting around dinner, and they said, how was how was the test today? And I said, yeah, it was pretty easy, you know, because she gave us the answers. <laughs> and my mom goes, oh, she gave you the answers? And I was like, yeah, no big deal. <laughs> and get, so anyway, they pull out of me what happened. And guess what? My parents went to the teacher the next day and had a conversation. And the kids hated me. <laughs> I got punched. I got thrown down. I got laughed at. It was absolutely horrible because I ruined their opportunity to get easy grades. Now, <clears throat> the point of church is not to put the answers on the overhead projector. The point of church is not to give you the cliff notes. The point of church is not even necessarily to come together to make you feel good, although we want to comfort one another in the journey. The point of church is that we would actually read and digest the Word of God and that we would let the very Spirit of God transform us as people, that He would overtake us and overwhelm us and fill us and move and work through us and that He would then heal and work in our marriages and heal and work with our kids and heal and work with our neighbors and that as we're living lives out there that the very spirit of Jesus that we become his hands and his feet and his face to a lost and broken and dying world. So you will always as you come in here get a gospel that is both beautiful and supernatural and challenging. So the point of this is actually not to come in and uh, spoon feed all the answers. No, no. The point is that we are, as we open the scriptures together, are actually looking and creating hunger in you to dig deeper. Creating desire in you to know this creator God of the universe, to walk with him hand in hand in the cool of the day. That your life could begin to reflect a Christ likeness. And I cannot tell you how to work out your salvation. I can help you understand some theological frameworks by which you can sort of meander down the river. I can point you to a one-year Bible. I can point you to things like a five-year journal, but they're just tools. You have to work out your salvation. Don't ever work for it. But every single day, you've got to go, Lord Jesus, how are you working out salvation in and through me on this particular day? The Christian's greatest goal is Christ-likeness.
My second point is the Christian's greatest concern. And this is fascinating because it comes out all through this letter, but we just saw Paul write about it. But it's actually relational unity. It's what I would call living love. And then Paul gets into it. It's fascinating. He, uh, he says, do everything without grumbling or arguing. Some translations say questioning. Does anybody have that? Questioning? Not a one of you. Okay, well, some translations say questioning. <clears throat> do everything without um, grumbling or questioning or arguing. Now, here's what I think Paul is saying here. If you look at the actual Greek, questioning and grumbling is the same thing. So questioning um, would be sort of internal grumbling, and grumbling is going to be external grumbling. Now go with me here just for a minute. Do everything without questioning or grumbling. Now, how quickly does grumbling or questioning become talking to your neighbor? It happens fast, doesn't it? There's some times that I'm in a conversation and something comes out of my mouth and I'm like, oh, Lord Jesus, I wish I could take that back. Because all of a sudden now we're gossiping, aren't we? We go from grumbling to now we're bleh, talking bad or ugly about someone. So I think the fundamental um, sort of question here, and the reason Paul raises it is, okay, if, we, if, you have to, if, if we're called to live in relational unity, um, grumbling uh, internally or externally begins to break that unity. And probably one of the greatest weaknesses of the Philippian church is their unity. Probably one of the greatest weaknesses of the American church is our, oh man, it's really sad to me right now. The American church is, is <clears throat> in, in a divided state. But I think what this grumbling thing has to do with is sort of like a fundamental question about life. Um, think with me a second. You, go, you get home at the end of your day, whatever your day consists of, or maybe you're home all day, and you get to the end of your day and you're going to lay your head down on your pillow. And think about the questions and the level of sort of thinking that goes through your mind. And it will be indicative as to whether you are a person who is sort of living in a, a grumbling state or understands that you're here to uh, please glorify and walk with God. They're very different. You begin to ask yourself, why is this happening? God, I can't believe that this is so bad. Um, I don't like this. Um, and I think what it begins to betray is this fundamental question. And, and now here's, here's the raw truth, church. This is a daily choice. The last, um, I'm not going to go into all the details, but the last six months of Abby and my life um, has been really, really hard for, for lots of different reasons, tons of different reasons. Um, the last silliest reason of all, I'm going to tell you this because it's so silly, but our hot water heater went out. I mean, it's just so silly, and it's really nothing. The type of stuff I'm talking about is so significant and has such deep pain. And, and, but this last thing is the hot water heater, and Abby looks at me last night, and she's like, why all this? I mean, and, and a hot shower is very important to Abby and very important to David, who lives with us. It's not as important to me for whatever reason, but it is, it, it's, it's, so this, there's this big, big, long, tumultuous six-month journey, really painful, really disappointing, and I am having to consistently let my head hit the pillow and when my eyes open up in the morning, choose to go, Lord Jesus, I don't like this. It doesn't feel good. I'm not even happy about some of it. Lord, I'm even disappointed about some of it but I choose you. I choose not to grumble, and I choose to glorify and praise you in the middle of it. And I have to not only make that choice, but I have to keep making that decision. That is the pathway to sort of being delivered from grumbling, internal or external questioning. 
Now, I, I think the other thing that begins to happen here is you actually are, are taking a look at sort of um, sin. Like, what is, he, what is he talking about? Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of light, without finding fault in a warped and crooked generation. That sounds serious, doesn't it? That sounds heavy. And, and I think what you actually have to do is you have to begin to go, okay, then what is um, sin? We don't like in America to talk about sin, but I think you have to actually look at this. What, what, is, what is sin? And, and what is, why is he saying warped and crooked generation? And why is grumbling such a big problem? Here it is. Sin um, is actually a, a condition or a state of the heart that says, I'm here for my will, not yours. That, that is the simplest form of sin. It is, it is when you say to Creator God, I am here, it's about my will, not yours. Remember Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane? Remember how he ended? He's praying, Lord, I don't want to go to the cross. And he says, but not my will, but yours be done. Like that is the absolute key to what is sin. Now, here's what we've done in the American church. We have, made, um, we have often made sin a list of maybe six to ten pet sins or pet things, activities, external things that we do, um, and, and, and we like to point at them because we don't struggle with them. You know what I'm saying? And, we're, and as long as we don't struggle with whatever those things over there are, we're okay. And I'm actually here to tell you, sin is this attitude of the heart. You can look good, you can sound good, you can be dressed nice, you can be at church, you can even be given your money and your time, and you can have a heart posture that is raised fist against the Lord, even in your sweetness and whatever, where you are saying, my will. That's what sin is, and that breaks unity. That is what grumbling is actually all about. Now, <clears throat> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use something here, and I have... Um, I'm just going to use it because I, I think it's important to give this, give you a practical example. Um, I have like 10 or 11 dear friends that smoke. They smoke. Now, <clears throat> the church has historically labeled that as one of their pet sins, haven't they? Now, I can't find anything in Scripture that would say it's sin to smoke. Now, I'd also look at my friends and go, I don't know that it's intelligent to smoke, okay? But I can't find anything that says it's sin. And what I see an American church doing is actually generating a list of things that, that are extra biblical going, if I keep myself out of these things, then I'm okay. And not only am I okay, but you people who do it are bad. And it creates this us and them sort of thing, and it distances us from the world instead of allowing us to be people who carry grace, truth, and light to the world. You follow me? So it's like, I'm not advocating smoking. So don't walk out of here and go, Pastor Michael said we should, you know, no, no, no. I'm giving you an example of how we in our humanness can generate rules that are extra biblical and say, this is how you please God. And I'm telling you, the only way to please God is to actually have a will that says, your will be done, not mine. If God calls you into business and you go into ministry, are you in sin? Yes, because it's about obedience to the word of God and the direction of God in your life. The goal is not that we have a bunch of professional Christians. The goal is that we have a bunch of people who are living their lives out in their context carrying King Jesus.
God has called us to be free of grumbling and questioning internally or externally. Now, can you walk through a legitimate process with them on any given day where you go, Lord, I don't like this, I'm uncomfortable with this, I'm upset about this, would you forgive me and would you change me? Yes. I think I say that like four or five times a day right now, literally. That's okay. That's what the Psalms are all about. They almost all begin with, God, how could you have done this? And they end with, yet I choose to praise you in the midst of it. Think for a second about the Israelites in the desert in the Old Testament in Exodus. One of the biggest things they did was actually grumble, complain. And at the root of it, what is it? It's a heart attitude that says, my will, not your will. I had to go to two different uh, volunteers on our volunteer team this week and ask their forgiveness. Does our pastor sin? Does our pastor have to go ask people's forgiveness? Yes, he does. Now listen to me. If you are not a person who can come to someone and say, I was wrong, humble yourself, and ask forgiveness, I would actually say you're still an immature believer. Perfection does not indicate maturity. Humility, going to another person, indicates building relational unity. Michael being right is not the goal. You being right is not the goal. Relational unity in Christ Jesus is the point. It's the essence of what God is moving us towards. How will the world know we're Christians? By our love or by our grumbling? Let's be an authentic church. Let's be a real church. Okay, my third point, right out of Paul's words, are the Christian's greatest challenge. So number one, we have the Christian's greatest goal is Christ-likeness. Number two, we have the Christian's greatest concern, should be relational unity. Number three, we have the Christian's greatest challenge. This is wild, but it's an outward display of a new inner nature. He actually says, shine as lights. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on that day of Christ. Now, a light um, does what it was created to do by being who it was created to be. When I turn my flashlight on, what does darkness do? Dissipates. Just by being light, it goes. The darkness goes. There, literally, it is the Christian's greatest challenge. Is if you're in Christ today, and you may be here, and you may go, I don't even know this Christ. We can talk afterwards. I'd love to talk to you. But if you're in here, and you go, um, I am in Christ, and Christ then is in me, uh, 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old is gone, and the new has come. So the question then becomes for us as believers, how do we become who we already are? How do we live out the reality that we're already new in Christ Jesus, and yet we still do some things and say some things and stumble and fall and hurt people and have to ask our volunteer team to forgive us? You hear me? 
That's the essence, sort of the, 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 the Christian's greatest challenge is displaying this new self externally. Let me, let me go here a second with you because I think this is um, important on two levels. Does it matter what people think of you? That's hard, isn't it? Does it matter what people think of you? Now, if, if the question is being asked, um, do you take your self-worth from what people think of you? Yeah, it matters. If, I'm sorry, no, it doesn't matter. Excuse me, forgive me. <laughs> It, it, <laughs> thank you. It, thank you. <laughs> if, if, the, if you're taking your self-worth and your identity from what people think of you, that's wrong. It, it should not matter. If you're taking um, how you feel about yourself or how you treat people or, you know, any of those things, if you're, if you're changing who you are in here to please people out there, that shouldn't be. It shouldn't matter. But does it matter if we're whole in Christ so we're not looking to get our identity met. We're not looking to get any needs met. Does it matter what they think of us? Yes. Now, I had the opportunity um, to go to a, a Link dinner. Um, we did Christmas boxes for a group called Link. And a handful of you went to that dinner. Stick your hands up if you were there. There was a few of us that actually went. It was really neat. And uh, Link helps take uh, people who are coming out of um, the jail system and helps reintroduce them into life. So we got to go to this little Link dinner, and I got to stand up and pray. It was just a, I don't know, three or four minutes. It was no big deal. Does it matter what they think of me? Yes. Because who am I representing? King Jesus. Does it matter how they experience me? Does it matter then how you come across and how you speak? <clears throat> yes. Now, am I saying perform to please God? No, no. You've got to understand, this is in the theological context that if you're in Christ, you are resting in him, the finished work of the cross, but then does it matter how people perceive you? Yes. That's why I asked the two people to forgive me this week. Because it matters. Some of you should probably be better at asking your roommates or your spouse to forgive you. Because it matters. I was doing some church business this week with Monica Goza right here. She's our administrator. Wave at us. And we were, um, I was driving down the road, and she was coming out of um, Winter Park Elementary School. And, um, oh, you were going in. <laughs> so Monica and I crossed paths, and she jumped in my truck. We had to go uh, take care of some church sort of business together and a project that we're working on. And um, at the end of that time, we came back and she said, hey, would you come in um, to the school, to Winter Park Elementary? She used to be a principal there and is no longer. And um, would you uh, talk to, and maybe we could even pray with some people there. And I said, okay, sure. Um, so we have two people who are new um, in our Saltbox congregation. It's Andrea and Albie Solana. Am I saying that right? So wave at us, Andrea. Um, she's the assistant principal at Winter Park. And we walked into this school, and now notoriously, America right now is in this separation of church and state, right? And, and I'm not against that, um, although I am for us being very courageous with our faith, right? I think that's very positive. So we walk into this place, and 
um, this lady comes up who's going through a tumultuous time um, with a family member and, and some suffering, and there's a, some disease they're, they're in the middle of fighting. And uh, we, we all um, sort of begin to talk, and we start tearing up. And with that, we step into Andrea's office. Now, she's the assistant principal at Winter Park Elementary School. So we're standing in the front office, and her, there's a window on her door. And the four of us step in there, and we shut the door. But guess what? People can see where? In. And one of the people shared, and then we all huddled up, and we all prayed, and we had a few tears, and we asked for the Lord's comfort and encouragement in the middle of the pain. We actually asked that the Holy Spirit would come and would heal and would change the direct trajectory of the situation. And we displayed outwardly the new inner nature. And I actually walked away so impacted by Andrea's courage because she welcomed us into her school. An assistant principal, that is her school. That is her turf. That is her area. That is her reputation. And she welcomed us in. And not only that, she welcomed us into her office. And then she welcomed us to pray in a relatively open scene area. And we all sat there and said a prayer. The Christian's greatest challenge is outwardly walking out and displaying the change that has happened here. Can you do what Andrea did in your work? Yes. Can you do what Andrea did in your neighborhood? Yes. Can you do what she did in your life? Yes. That is what the essence of the gospel is all about. It's demonstrating outwardly this new thing that is inside of us. So does it matter what other people think of us? Yes not to try to get our identity, not to try to please them, not because, but because we are about sharing the gospel of Christ Jesus. My fourth point this morning, and I love this. I love Paul here. This is so powerful. Lord, I pray that you'd help me communicate it so well. My fourth point is the Christian's greatest achievement is to be poured out like a drink offering. Now, Go back to what we just read this morning, verse 17. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice. Paul's a brilliant writer, and he's brilliant for two reasons. He, he's actually, um, he's writing to this church in Philippi, so it's a, it's a, a Roman church. They speak um, Greek, and a libation, some translations actually say libation, um, and a libation was literally a, a little bit of alcohol that was poured out um, to the gods, it was a sacrifice. Now, hang with me just a second. So before a Philippian um, city member, just any person that lived in the city who was a non-believer, um, ate a meal, they would take a libation, a little bit of alcohol, and they would usually drink it. That is the pouring out of that alcohol. They'd start a meal, and they'd end a meal with a little bit of alcohol, a little, little libation. Now, so Paul's using a powerful double meaning here. The first thing is poured out like this um, Greco-Roman libation. The second thing he's tying in is in the Old Testament, uh, the Mosaic law called the Jewish people to build a rock altar, and on top of the rock altar, they would sacrifice a lamb. And there are multiple places in the Old Testament that when that lamb was sacrificed, there was this smaller little thing called a drink offering that would be poured out on top of the sacrifice. Look at verse 17. 
I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice. Now, is the drink offering the sacrifice? No, it's very important. Is the drink offering the sacrifice? Have you ever wondered why we as Christians don't go out and slaughter lambs? There's a big rock out front. It would work great. Gosh, that'd be really weird, wouldn't it? Praise Jesus, he came. He became the atoning sacrifice. Once and for all, he paid the price on the cross of Christ Jesus. He became the sacrifice once and for all, for all of our sin. And then what he calls us to is to be the drink offering, the little libation even, Paul calls it, that would be poured out on the main offering, the lamb of God. So when Paul says, literally, I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice, he is literally, he's about to die. Paul's about to die here. And he's literally saying, I am being emptied. I am giving everything I have to be poured out. It's literally a small sacrifice that accompanies the main or the larger sacrifice. Now, go to verse 30, and I want to tie it up with this. So Perry, when you're ready, you can come up here. Verse 30 says, talking about Epaphroditus, he risked his life to make up for the help you yourselves could not give me. Now, Lord Jesus, let us tie this together. Paul is such a brilliant writer. He's such a brilliant portrayer of the gospel of Christ Jesus. So he's already, in the church of Philippi, he's already drawn in everyone who has a Roman or Greek background, and he's drawn in everybody who has a Jewish background by saying, you are called to be poured out, like that little libation, like that drink offering. And then he flips at the very end of the chapter, and he's talking about these guys who risked everything. And if you look in the Greek, that word, risked his life, is actually a... um, It's a gambling word. I brought Amelia's dice. She's got these two dice. But it's a gambling word, and it actually, in the Greek, it means to stake everything on a turn of the dice. Now, go with me just a minute. Paul's talking about Timothy, and he's talking about Epaphroditus, which we didn't read about. You can read later. And he's also saying in his own life that he has been poured out like a drink offering. He is being poured out like a drink offering. There was a, a pastor in the city of Carthage named Cyprian. And Cyprian, during an outbreak of Ebola or smallpox, took a small group of people and he named them after this Greek word, which means to stake everything on a turn of the dice. Because they would go in and risk their lives. They would risk everything to go in and help people who were sick and dying at risk of their own peril. Right? They could be the, the contagiousness that all this whatever the outbreak had could have gotten on them and he literally uh, goes in and he is ministering the gospel of Christ Jesus to people who are sick and dead and dying to his own peril and so Paul is writing and he's saying I am poured out and these guys who've walked with me have risked it all they have risked it all we have staked it all on Christ Jesus. We have staked it all. We have given it all because Christ paid it all. He has called us to give it all. And here's the question. 
we spend so much of our time asking, are we pleased with God? Are we okay with what God's doing in our lives? How do we feel about it? And I think the real question that ought to be asked by all of us on almost a daily basis is, is God pleased with the way I am pouring out my life? Is, is he, is he actually, when, the, when, when my days come to an end, I'm getting ready to go up to Ohio and perform a funeral for my aunt, and she's now standing before King Jesus. When my days come to an end, will my life be the case that I have staked it all for him? Every single day when I go to bed, my goal is that I would, my head would hit the pillow and I would have left everything on the field, given it all, poured out every ounce. And you know what? I've yet to succeed fully. But he's working in me and he's working through me. Now listen to me. The question for us as a church is are we going to be a church that chooses to stop grumbling and complaining about whether it's a spouse or a job or even a sickness or even a suffering or whatever's going on in our lives. And are we as a church going to be individuals who go, no, no, I am not going to get bogged down into this grumbling and complaining and backbiting and fussing and whatever. No, 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 I am going to give my life. I am here because I am to be poured out like a drink offering on behalf of the gospel of Christ Jesus. And I'm going to give it all for my spouse, for my friend, for my roommate, for my kid. I'm going to give everything I can. I'm going to leave it all on the field. I'm going to stake it all on the turn of the dice because I am going to give everything for the sake of Christ Jesus because he gave it all for me. That's the gospel. And it's actually a challenging gospel, isn't it? might not make you feel warm and fuzzy, but here's what it does is it gives you a mission. And I saw the assistant principal at Winter Park Elementary School the other day on a mission. Demonstrating out loud in front of her staff that she believed in who? King Jesus. Let's literally together go, Lord Jesus, we are here to be poured out like a libation, like a drink offering. And we're going to stake everything on knowing you and walking with you.